Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Today, we are thrilled to have Stacy Tank, Chief Transformation Officer at Heineken in the house. With a globe-spanning career, including stints in countries like Brazil, Mexico, Canada, Germany, England, France, and Amsterdam, Stacy has held senior positions at leading companies like General Electric, Home Depot, and of course, Heineken. Stacy is also the founder of Our Happy Place, a nonprofit organization focused on childhood mental wellness and serves as a board trustee for the Heineken Africa Foundation and the American Chamber of Commerce in the Netherlands. Stacy has also been recognized as a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute, and an Academy for Systems Change Fellow. In today's interview, we'll delve into Stacy's career journey, starting from her early days in business communications, all the way to her current leadership position at Heineken as Chief Transformation Officer. Through her story, Stacy shares valuable advice for women in leadership, emphasizing the importance of embracing change and self-belief. Without further ado, here is Heineken's Chief Transformation Officer, Stacy Tank. Hello, welcome back to Frictionless Marketing. This is Paul Dyer, CEO of Lippy Taylor. Lippy Taylor is a digital communications agency that was named the most outstanding mid-sized PR firm by PR Week in both 2021 and 2022. We specialize in helping brands revitalize their relevance amid the changing media landscape and evolving audience demographics. Stacy, um, thank you, first of all, for joining us here today. No, pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And I thought if it's all right with you, um, because you have such an interesting journey you've taken professionally, um, maybe we should start out by just asking you to kind of walk people through the path you've taken. Yeah, sure. Sure thing. Maybe starting at the beginning and getting to the, the present. So I was born in upstate New York, moved around a lot as a kid, ended up studying business and communications. And then I spent the first 10 years of my career at General Electric. And I started in a marketing communications leadership program and then went into their corporate audit staff. So I was doing balance sheet financial audits, acquisitions, dispositions, Department of Justice investigations, living all over the world from uh, working in nuclear power plants and aviation and healthcare equipment to movie studios and TV studios. They owned NBC Universal, consumer banks in Germany, commercial real estate in Paris, lived in Brazil and in Mexico, all over the US, in Canada. Uh, and in Western Europe, and it was the most extraordinary training ground, uh, seeing all those businesses learning how they make money and quickly figuring out, hopefully, how to add a little bit of value. And uh, so that was pretty incredible. And it reinforced my love of learning new things and being completely outside of my comfort zone and just living by your wits and having to figure it out. I was very loyal to GE and was going on to my next job there. And then I, out of the blue, got a, a phone call from this Dutch brewer called Heineken. And if I'm honest, I actually thought it was a German company. I knew almost nothing about Heineken. It's so embarrassing to think about it now. And the CEO of the US business was at a dinner with a woman I was on a board with. <clears throat> and he said, I have this role on my management team and I'm looking for someone with this, this, and this. She said, do you know Stacy Tank? And he Googled me. And 
And then I get one of those phone calls, like, do you want to meet for coffee? And you're thinking, is this person an ax murderer? Like, should I go? I guess it's a public place. It's safe. We go for coffee. And we really hit it off. And I ended up joining Heineken the first time in in New York and uh, Manhattan and in White Plains. And then I was having a great experience and good things were happening there. But I got another call some years later from the new CEO of Home Depot. And he invited me to join and work for him. And most recently, I was running services businesses for Home Depot, Home Depot Interiors, Home Depot Exteriors, and Home Depot Installation Services. And actually turning around uh, what we end up calling Home Depot Installation Services from a business that had some bright spots, but some very challenging uh, elements and getting it back to strong double-digit growth. And I thought I'd run businesses forever. I thought it was this intersection between all the functional roles that I had had, plus the ability to really mobilize people and do this through culture and shared objectives and also have a little bit of fun and create things together. And then again, out of the blue in the early part of 2020, the person who I had worked with originally at Heineken in New York got promoted to the global CEO role in Amsterdam. And he texted me or I texted him the day he got announced as the global CEO and said, congratulations. And he wrote, thanks, dot, 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 can you talk, question mark. So that's how I ended up coming back and moving to Europe with the family in March 2020, which is about a month into, uh, or yeah, I started in June 2020, um, but March was when COVID was getting well underway. So it was an interesting time, a lot of volatility, a lot of unknowns. But we took that empty Delta plane from Atlanta to Amsterdam and settled into a new life and a house with a thatched roof and uh, all the good Dutch, uh, Dutch things. And now I'm the chief transformation officer for Heineken. So the moral of the story, at least twice, sounds like take the call. <laughs> take the call. Right. Even though I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm happy where I am, but. Sometimes you need to listen and to be open-minded, even though, yeah, life is funny. It's unpredictable. And, uh, but I think also the universe has a way of putting you where you need to be. So, so you're now chief transformation officer at Heineken. Um, Can you, can we start with like, um, what does that mean? And then maybe (laughs) let's talk about like, what are you transforming from and to, and you know, like, why did it need to transform? Absolutely. No. So when Dolph, our CEO called me and he's very compelling, gives me the sales pitch, you know, what got us here won't get us there. Our growth strategy reaches conclusion in this year. Anyway, new CEO, new executive committee, nine of 11 ex-co members are new. Now the world is so volatile, chief transformation, transformation. I thought, wow, it sounds great. And I hung up the phone and I went to Google. I said, what is a chief transformation officer? <laughs> oh, it is a real title. This is a real job. <laughs> and there was a little bit that came back in Google search, but not a lot. And what I could figure out is that it was a role that would help to hold the birth of a new vision, kind of the next season or the next chapter of whatever that book is that the company is trying to write. And then it goes in a lot of directions from there. Sometimes it's very financialized. It's very kind of big project management. Other times it's very strategic, a lot of strategy. Sometimes the role has M&A. It can be a lot of different things. Interestingly, in three years, I see this role popping up in a lot of places. And I think that's because the world, 
I thought we were living in volatility, but we were living in incredible stability. And now we had COVID, but COVID then precipitated all the supply chain disruptions, the crazy input cost inflation, the kind of decoupling based on geopolitical tensions, poly crisis, um, all kinds of COVID-related crises and a war on the European continent that I thought um, I would never live to see. So yeah, the world is incredibly unpredictable and we need to be agile, we need to be flexible, we need to be listening, we need to be working together in new ways. And indeed, as a company, we're a 158-year-old brewer. We are fourth generation, you know, family-owned, we're publicly traded, but Charlene Heineken is our biggest shareholder. And we want to be around another 158 years. And that means the playbook that we ran 10 years ago to speak to the hearts of consumers and to expand the category of beer and to make it exciting, the plays that we need to run are different today. So we wanted to co-create what that growth strategy should look like. And now three years in, we're bringing it to life. It's really incredible. It's an interesting um, point you make about, you know, how we all feel, um, we felt like we were living in, you know, I guess uh, unpredictability, and then we got shown what real unpredictability looks like. It's you know, sort yeah. of like busy, you know, like Joe Biden's dog walker feels equally busy to Joe Biden, right? We all feel busy <laughs> until you realize what busy really is, right? So true. That's a great way to say it. And actually, with my kids, sometimes when they're in a crisis, because we literally had the dog eat one of my son's homework the other day. That actually no. happened. And no, it's it not did not. Lie. No, it actually <laughs> happened. We have a puppy and he eats everything. And he your, ate the- your son has homework on paper? I know. It was paper homework. This is a small, <laughs> an eight-year-old. <laughs> so okay. it was like math. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it was like his world was ending, right? And it's it's probably uh, equivalent to, you know, some, some massive thing going wrong uh, in an adult's life. But it all depends on your perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so Heineken has obviously done a lot right. Are you, you're, are you actually the largest single beer brand in the world? Is that right? So we're the most international beer brand. We yeah. also Heineken is. We have 300 brands. So folks sure. know Heineken, and Heineken is about one in five beers that we brew and sell. But we have, in the U.S., we have Dos Equis, we have Tecate, we have other brands um, like that. And then globally, a lot of other uh, a lot of other brands. Globally, we're the second largest brewer. Okay. Okay. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, but I know there's some stats around you can find a Heineken in more places in the world than any other beer. Um, so you've obviously done a lot of things right. Um, you've also been a leader in many ways with um, CSR and some of these other topics that are very important to the, the discourse today. Um, I actually wrote in my book about the Open Your World campaign. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was an extraordinary campaign. Um, but obviously, the bar keeps raising. Mm-hmm. Right. It keeps going up and um, you're here to transform the company for the future. So how do you think about um, the, the growth strategy and transformation in the context of the new expectations from an ESG and CSR perspective? Absolutely. I think there are two ways to reflect on this question. And it was really integrated into the way that we created what we call uh, our new growth strategy, Evergreen that it would be about top line growth and being smart with costs and better capital allocation, digitizing our company, investing in people, all of this, but that we also had to take stock in what we believe in inside the company and the realities outside the company. 
And yes, our consumer's changing. Yes, digital makes things possible that were never possible before. All of these things are true. But also the impacts of climate change are on our doorstep. And it used to be something when I was a little kid, I remember I was in the environmental club in my elementary school and we talked about pollution and then we talked about the ozone layer and these were scary things, but they weren't on our doorstep. Every time I'm in California, I'm always asking my Uber driver, you know, how is everything going? How are the fires? Can you insure your house? And a lot of time they tell me, no, I can't insure my house anymore. My single biggest asset because of the fires, because of climate change. And we've had crazy weather events all over the world affecting our breweries. And if you just think about business continuity, we have 200 breweries all over the world from little places like Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea and um, to big places like Brazil and Vietnam and in the UK. And you've been to all of them, right? Oh, I wish I had. No, not, <laughs> yet, not yet. I hope someday. Um, but you can see that out of all the 200, over 30 of them now are classified to be in water-stressed locations. And of course, no water, no beer. And communities need water. It's so basic for everything. When we look at climate change modeling, we just did this last year for the first time, Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosures, TCFD modeling. What would happen to our businesses in a um, three-degree warming scenario in a in a even warmer scenario than that. And we see the number of water stress sites doubling. We see incidents of, it's not just forest fire, but it's flooding. So agriculturally, farmers are having trouble with their crops because there's too much or too little rain, too much, or too little sun. All these things are really changing. And there's both a huge humanitarian consideration and there's very real business continuity consideration. On top of that, if you look at the price on carbon that's emerging, carbon taxation all over the world, what we would guess, and it's a best guess, it's not a really bullish guess. You can look at the price on carbon people estimate can be, you know, around 100 euro per metric ton. And some people guess higher, some people guess lower. But by 2030, if it was 100 per ton, we'd be paying 2.4 billion euro a year in incremental tax. So business continuity tells us that climate change is affecting how we can operate and society and our beautiful planet that is the only home that we have. So we also felt on the topic of, of environmental sustainability that we have a big role to play. And let's start with our own footprint. So let's make sure that we decarbonize our breweries and not by buying carbon credits, by truly decarbonizing our 200 breweries, which we were the first global brewer to commit to doing by 2030 and then in the full value chain by 2040. So our program we call Brew a Better World, it's not some CSR thing over here. It's literally woven into the fabric of how we're making acquisition decisions, how we're making business cases, investment cases. It's how we also pay our people. So our top leaders who have long-term incentive compensation, they have measures on their decarbonization targets being met, our water efficiency targets, and gender representation and leadership. So that was actually the kind of the impetus for Evergreen in 2020 when we launched was redesigning what we call the green diamond, our value creation model, to put all of this on equal footing. Well, and you've now framed it in such impactful business terms, both from you know business continuity in the face of existential crisis, as well as 
and just just dollars and cents and haven't even talked about things like reputation or you know perception or being an employer of choice which unfortunately is where a lot of companies are today is they're more focused on those things because they haven't been able to quantify the things you're talking about yet um, from a business standpoint. So let me ask, because we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast in particular that come from either communications or marketing functions. Um, and if somebody listening to this is saying, I want to be able to do what she did, you know, or what Heineken did, you know, I want to be able to do what she's describing in terms of really quantifying the business impact, where would they start? Yes. So coming out of COP26 um, COP in Glasgow, there was uh, an intent to set some new international sustainability standards. And the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, took that on as a mission. And then different countries and different security and exchange type uh, organizations have been taking the guidance and they've been putting them into the rules. So in the United States now, the Security and Exchange Commission, I think still has out in the comment period, the expression of what some of this non-financial reporting is going to need to look like. As part of that, my guess is that organizations are going to need to look at business continuity modeling. We use the Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosures because that's the the footprint or the, the model that we think will be adopted uh, in Europe. There's a piece of legislation that's different at the European Union level called CSRD. But for marketing and communications folks, I would get curious about that. Go talk to the folks in your organization who are going to be responsible for that. And different folks organize in different ways. It could be your supply chain team. You could have a separate sustainability department. Um, but I would go ask them, have you done TCFD modeling? What did it tell us? Can you sit down and review the results together and start to dimensionalize the impact on the operations? And then there's an amazing thing you can do to marry all the great consumer data that we all have when we're working in comms or marketing to say, okay, now we're going to do this because it's the right thing to do. That's, I think, the most important thing. Also for business continuity, very important because we have duties to the folks that own our company, all of our shareholders. So what's the intersection between what consumers care about? And how can we talk about that differently to try to build brand power? And brand power means you're going to drive hopefully the top line of your business. One example that has just spoken to me, and it's almost like an experiment every time I'm out in a restaurant, and restaurants are our customers, so we love our bars and restaurants, um, that I make a point to tell my friends is about two-way packaging. And in the beer industry, we have about 40% of our packaging that's already returnable. We have kegs, we have glass bottles that are returnable in many, many places in the world. And those returnable bottles have an 85% better carbon footprint. It's amazing. Wow. But no one knows because we've never talked about it. And sometimes those bottles, they have a little scuff mark on them because they're getting returned and they're getting refilled. It's sort of like the ugly fruits and vegetables that get thrown away. <laughs> yeah. There was the ugly fruit, fruit and vegetable movement. Um, to say, hey, they taste delicious. Don't throw out food. And by the way, in the States, uh, methane emissions from food waste is a top three methane emitter and it's contributing to climate change. So it's, it's such an interesting topic when you get into it. With two-way bottles, if we could just express this to consumers, they do care. And we can build stronger brands that way, but we have to understand the content and then find those intersections. All right, so for our listeners, you heard it here first. The drink ugly beer campaign from Heineken <laughs> is yeah. the next thing that you're going to see 
coming to television or digital ads. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right. So Stacey, I want to, I want to go into a slightly different direction here, but um, I'm going to see if I can get this right from you walked us through your, your background and you have lived in Brazil, Mexico, mm-hmm. Canada, Germany, England, France. Now, of course, you're in the Netherlands. You, you hail from upstate New York. Did I miss anything? I lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Cincinnati, Ohio, Houston, Texas, um, some other places in the now state. You're, now you're getting there. See, that was I'm I'm a Midwesterner yeah. who went to school in Texas. So okay. now now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. All right. So you you've kind of you know you got a very very broad purview, much more than than you know most people um, you know would at this stage in their career. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, um, has any of these experiences overly influence your global perspective? Do they sort of have equal weight? Um, you know, and when you think of, you know, the role you're playing now transforming a truly global organization, how does this perspective that you've gathered sort of influence your own leadership approach? Yeah, I think being outside of your home culture is something important for all of us to do as many times as we have the opportunity because you're reminded that the world is not black and white. It's full mostly of shades of gray. And it's easy to get into a judgment mindset about this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad, this is what I believe. But when you meet folks who have had other experiences, they come from different cultures, I'm reminded that there are a lot of great ways to do things. And if you listen, you can learn a lot from other cultures and other ways of living and doing and interacting. In one example, in the Dutch culture, consensus is really important. And everyone's voices are heard and it takes a lot of time, but it also can have incredible benefits. And I'll tell you where I actually, I see it in the office, but where I learned it was in my son's hockey team. Because I couldn't figure out why the coach was consulting with all the parents about changing the lineups. And we were saying, hey, but you're the coach. You're kidding. No. And we were saying, we trust you. Like, first of all, don't ever ask me because I didn't play hockey and I don't know. So if you really want an opinion, you have to ask my hockey playing husband. But moral of the story for us, like, it's okay. We really do trust you and go for it. But the reason that they were checking in was because consensus and making sure everyone can say their piece, it's really important for buy-in. So when we were doing Evergreen and knew we needed a new growth strategy, it wasn't the executive committee sitting in a boardroom that was saying, oh, I have a very smart idea. This is what we're going to do with our new, you know, route to market, digitizing our route to market and all this uh, stuff. We brought 150 leaders from every country in the world together and we co-created it. And then we published parts of it on our Facebook workplace community and we asked for feedback and it became much richer because of it, much better. But also when you feel it's yours and you put your fingerprints on it, you have to see it be successful. You have instant buy-in. So just one example, but I'm humbled to think of how much I thought I had everything figured out. I'm working in the States, in my home culture where you can communicate quickly and everyone kind of has a shared understanding of things and then going and, you know, I was saying I was just in Cambodia, which is where I got this, um, this necklace being with our Cambodian colleagues. And I went to Kuala Lumpur and I was in Malaysia after that. And then, you know, going to Brazil, other places, you realize that there are so many gems of wisdom and thoughtfulness that can enrich 
your leadership style can enrich the way you see the world, the way you live your life. And uh, that's really a journey worth taking. So I, I just have to add one piece of context to this, and I'm curious your perspective on it, is it does feel like we're in an always speeding up environment, right? And where people are are, are almost um, without exception, preferring fast and good enough over slow and perfect. Mm -hmm. And yet bringing 150 people together from all around the world and then getting input on mm -hmm. Facebook and striving for consensus. And no doubt everybody has overlapping incentives. I doubt everybody is 100% aligned in terms of their incentives and all that. Um, how do you draw that line between mm -hmm. speed, you know, versus uh, getting everybody on the bus before you start driving? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I'll borrow an adage, I think originated from Amazon, which is about one-way doors and two-way doors. If you're walking through a one-way door and it's hard to undo what you're about to do, it's probably worth taking a little bit more time in your decisioning if you can. Now, sometimes there are actual life and death decisions and you just have to go. That happens when you run 200 breweries and you're all over the world and we work in some volatile markets where we really have to make sure people are safe and those types of things. You don't have the luxury of, of uh, debating things till the cows come home. But we, I do try to recognize when is something irreversible and uh, or, or largely difficult to undo. And, and therefore, let's take time to build a process that allows us to really think together in a container and a culture where people can feel also safe to say, this is a terrible idea <laughs> no, or uh, I have a doubt about this, you know, because also you can take all the time and go around and listen to folks, but they don't feel safe to challenge you and to speak truth to power or to, you know, whatever to the group, it doesn't work. Um, other times, yeah, seven out of 10 or four out of 10 is good enough. And we should just, you know, keep moving at pace. And a lot of times that's more the day-to-day -day, uh, type of things and the things that are more two-way door oriented. So it's really good perspective. And of course, even in your answer there, I love the adage that came out, which is you know a little bit of a folksy adage there from our Midwestern roots of till the cows come home, because I'm pretty sure your colleagues in a lot of these other countries would have no idea what you're talking about if you said that we're going to talk about something till the cows come home. I have the best list of all of these expressions that I'm learning from them. They're learning from me. One of my favorites, I was talking to a French colleague just before this, and his expression that he uses is acceleration of particles. Wow. He'll say, whoa, I'm sensing a real wonky. particles, but it means people are getting hyped up. Um, there's another one about putting the frogs in the wheelbarrow. That's a Dutch oh. one. You know, we say herding cats in America. Uh, I think, you know, yeah. the frogs are jumping out of the wheelbarrow and you're trying to get them in the wheelbarrow. There's so <laughs> many amazing expressions and, and little metaphors that are handy. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's great. And of course, bringing them all together around the world is part of the fun. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, I realize we're coming up on our time here. I have, I have one sort of um, just big door left to open, which is about female, female mentorship. You know, you are obviously um, somebody who reached the upper echelons of the, the top companies very early in your career and continue to have a big impact globally. Um, for other women who are listening right now and uh, thinking, you know, how do I emulate that? I'm looking for mentorship. I'm looking for guidance. I'm like, you know, I'm good at my job, but how do I get to that next step? What would your advice be? Yeah, a couple of reflections. I would say first that this is for all of us, 
whatever, whoever you are, whatever gender you identify with, whatever your upbringing, what I, it's on all of us to make sure that whoever you are, you can feel like you belong and that you've got a shot to do whatever it is you dream of doing. And I work in a majority male Dutch culture currently. We're evolving. It's changing. But I can tell you that the majority male Dutch culture has a lot more influence on whether we are able to cultivate amazing diverse leaders in our organization than those diverse leaders do themselves, just because of sheer numbers. They are the majority culture. So it really is on all of us. And as a mom of two boys, I really hope that they can grow up in a world where whatever they want to do, they can choose it without a stigma, you know, without thinking, oh, I want to be, you know, an artist or I want to stay home with my kids or I want to be an entrepreneur or I want to have a business career. But I grew up, I think, in in uh, my parents' generation and even, you know, with my husband and I, we still feel sometimes gender norms that tell us about the roles that we should be playing. And I hope my kids can really pick what they want to do, where their energy is. With that said, female role models played a huge role in my life, if I'm being transparent about it. My mother was always working outside the house. Ultimately, she had a big career, and I thought that was very normal. So I never knew that I should doubt my potential because of my gender. It never occurred to me because she was such a fabulous role model. And I did have a few female leaders like Beth Comstock at General Electric, who when I was an intern, I think 19 or 20 years old, she was there and she was kicking tail and, and she was also very cool and very funny. And, you know, I thought kicking tail in a leather jacket. Oh yeah. in leather pants and high heel. I mean, she just did her thing. And it's important to have symbols of people like that to tell you, you do you, but also don't back down, you know, don't doubt that you can do it because I did it and you can do it. And that kind of confidence I do see sometimes, I'm stereotyping a little bit, but in my experience, I do see some of the females that I mentor, my female colleagues do bring more doubt and indecision sometimes into the workplace. And I, I always say, look, it's, I have doubt. I have so much doubt, right? We all have doubt. And I express that to friends and family, but when it comes time to the conversations that are going to shape the future of your career, check that doubt at the door and go for it. That's great advice. And you're right. Um, it, may come across as stereotyping, but it's very well researched that men are frequently overconfident in their abilities. Um, and that unfortunately people end up valuing confidence over competence a little too often. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you need to just have the confidence to say, you know what, I'm going to be able to figure this out. Look, if Stacy can move to every corner of the globe, you know, and figure it out from what was it? It was like airplanes. It was, it was movies. It was yeah. here. It was home Depot. If she yeah. can do all that, I can do it. Yeah, completely. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you, Stacey. We really appreciate your time and sharing all your thoughts and perspectives here today. I think people are going to really enjoy listening to this. No, thanks so much for having me, Paul. Really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us and our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken 
and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.